Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 135 of the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show that is dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around service member, veteran, and military family mental health. On today's show, I have a conversation with Dr. David Kieran, an author, professor, and historian. His book, Signature Wounds, The Untold Story of the Military's Mental Health Crisis, takes a broad look at the nuanced story of the United States Army's effort to understand and address mental health concerns as they relate to military service. It's often the case that when a service member is caught up in that kinetic cycle of deployment, training, uh, redeployment, they may not have time to think about their experiences and reflect on them. And it's really when things slow down and you have the opportunity to reflect that some of those issues that need to be addressed will come to the surface. You know, I think it's it's sometimes easy when you're just running all the time to, to push aside some of the problems. They find their way out in other ways, right? You, you know, anxiety uh, and depression do not just lay low. They'll come out and you'll be, people be snapping at their wives or their husbands or whatever. Often it's not until people either get out of the service or they get to a, a place where they're not on that heavy deployment schedule that that's when they really are going to step back and see, oh, there, there are some things I haven't worked through here for my deployment. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast once again, and as always, really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, you know, we often talk about um, mental health from a veteran perspective on this show or from mental health professionals. Uh, but today I want to take a little bit uh, of, of a turn and look at it, uh, the veteran mental health issue from a historical perspective. And to do so, I have author and professor David Kieran coming on the show. David, welcome. Hi, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, thanks for taking the time. I uh, really appreciate it. I, I had an advanced copy of your book, the uh, the signature wounds, the untold story of military's mental health crisis. I, I was very appreciative to have that sent to me to take a look at that, and, and definitely want to talk about that and a lot of your research. Before we get there, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. So I uh, am a historian of, of what we call war and society. I'm not really a, a strict mental health historian, uh, nor am I a strict military historian. I'm I'm uh, I'm less interested in the tactics and strategies that are employed in particular battles than I am in what the experience of people in the military is and also the relationship between the military and the larger culture. So I, I came to this um, through my first book, which is called Forever Vietnam, How a Divisive War Changed American Public Memory. And I, I wrote a book about how the way Americans remember the Vietnam War 
and memorialize the Vietnam War has really shaped the way they think about other conflicts. Uh, everything from World War II veterans being finally able to talk about some of the uh, traumatic experiences they'd had and the mental health consequences of their experiences, which they really weren't able to talk about in the late 40s and 50s. But after Vietnam, there came a vocabulary where they could suddenly begin to talk about uh, their experiences more openly uh, up to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and how uh, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans thought about their experience through the lens of Vietnam and tried to articulate whether they were or weren't like Vietnam veterans. Um, and as I was writing that book, I had a long section in that last chapter about Iraq and Afghanistan veterans where I was writing about how memoirists of Iraq and Afghanistan talked about mental health and whether or not they had PTSD. And um, I ended up not being able to fit that into the book. And so I ended, realized a um, couple of months after the book was published that I was really interested in pursuing that topic further and thinking about well, what are the mental health consequences of these wars? How do people inside the military think about their mental health and the impact of their deployments on mental health, how do military leaders think about how they manage and try to prevent and treat mental health issues for their, for their troops, but also how do Americans outside of the military, uh, the 99.5% of Americans who aren't in the military, how do they think about the experiences of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines when they're deployed and what are uh, what do they think about the mental health consequences of deployment and how do they use those understandings to think about both the place of the military in American society, whether or not the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were, were good wars that needed to be fought about what kind of services veterans need. And so when I realized those were the questions I was interested in, it set me on the path to writing signature wounds. Hey, so you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, um, for many people, uh, Vietnam was very significant. Uh, as I mentioned to you, uh, before we started, um, I had originally enlisted in the Army Reserves. I was there for about a year, but the reason I did that was because my father was a Vietnam veteran. My father, um, when I said, Hey, pops, I'm going to join the, the, the Army, there was no combat at that point. This was 92, so the Gulf War was over. Um, and he was like, uh, you know, you're too smart for the army. Why don't you try the reserves? And so even his experience in Vietnam influenced my original decisions of, of joining the military. Um, whereas I also grew up with the aftermath of Vietnam. My father, three of my uncles served and I saw each one of them responded differently. Um, and so I saw the impact of, of the aftermath of it because only one of my uncles had, had remained in the military. And so, um, the Vietnam conflict, multi-generationally and, and you're talking about three generations so the world war ii and then um the the baby boomers and then their children my generation our generation um it has had a pretty big impact and even as you were talking i'm thinking of um when i was in afghanistan we were listening to Creedence clearwater revival you know and, and saying we're not really running through the jungle but there was there still was some of that connection back to that previous war and we felt more of an affinity for them um, than, than necessarily for, for our neighbors who didn't fight. Yeah, I think it really can't be overstated how much Vietnam and the Vietnam experience and, and Americans' remembrance of Vietnam shapes the way we think about the military and uh, the experiences of soldiers. Uh, Vietnam really has become definitive um, in a number of ways. And you saw this throughout the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. I used to have a bumper sticker that said, is it Vietnam yet? I didn't have it on my car, but I would bring it into class to show students that, you know, Vietnam really shaped the way people who were opposed to wars talked about their opposition to the war. You, know, you, you can't have another Vietnam. And then you also had people who were uh, saying, well, this won't be another Vietnam. But certainly also the, the vocabulary, the way soldiers talk about their wartime experiences, the way uh, politicians talk about whether we should support or not support a war, all of that is defined um, in the 21st century to a large extent by the, the, uh, the looming memory of Vietnam 
And I think that goes down to uh, how we talk about mental health as well. Now, uh, you hadn't surfed? No, no, I hadn't. Not at all. Um, and in fact, my, uh, my family, my, fa- my grandfather was in World War II. My dad uh, served in the reserves during Vietnam. So he was one of the people who um, was able to, to, to get into the reserves and, and thereby uh, avoid being drafted. And, um, but if you grew up in the 1980s, like I did, you, and, and as you alluded to, um, you grew up in a culture that was just saturated with the remembrance of Vietnam, the opening of the memorial. You had all of the, the most famous Vietnam movies come out in the late 70s and into the 80s. You have all these TV shows with um, veterans as their protagonists. And uh, for me, I also had uh, a teacher who was very influential to me, who uh, was also my track coach. He'd been a Marine in Vietnam and talked a lot about his experiences with us. Um, and, and, and the, the, the tricky binary that I think you see with a lot of veterans where um, he would say being a Marine was the most important thing he'd ever done with his life and also had some very serious critiques of the Vietnam War and the way the war had been fought and the way the war had been managed. And if you're 15 or 16 years old trying to understand, well, how can a thing you were so critical of also be the most important thing you ever did? Um, I think those kinds of conversations set me on the path eventually to to what I ended up writing about. And, um, and if you grew up in the eighties, you realize that any adult male in particular that you knew, um, who was your parents age, they've had to grapple with Vietnam at some level, right? Whether they served, whether they protested, whether they avoided it. And it just taught me that Vietnam was this really central defining experience to the country. And, and one we're still coming to terms with. You know, you're, you're exactly right. And, and, uh, I've mentioned it before on the show. Um, but yeah, it was what 83, 84 when Reagan finally came out and said, we need to welcome them home. And, in the, the, the mid to, um, early to mid eighties is when they started having the large gatherings. And like you said, the Vietnam Memorial and the traveling wall. Um, and you're right. The, it, it did become more of the, the sort of, um, the, in the public consciousness. Um, and so that's how you, and of course you got to writing forever Vietnam. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what it was like for you, um, as a history professor to interact with, with combat veterans never having served yourself. Well, I first was extremely illuminating, you know, that I, I'm, I'm not a veteran, uh, and certainly not a combat veteran. And so to, have the chance to talk with them about their experiences was a tremendous learning opportunity for me. And also one, I was really mindful of what I didn't know and, and who the expert was in this situation, which is to say that, um, you know, sometimes I think, uh, we professors can decide we're the experts on our, on everything. <laughs> when in this case, it's uh, really, you have to listen to veterans and ask them about their experience and engage with them about their experiences. And uh, over the years, I have been surprised when I've talked to veterans how often I'm the first person uh, to ask them about their experience. Um, or my students, when I have my students go out and interview veterans, um, sometimes, uh, especially Vietnam veterans, will say, I'm, su- you know, I'm surprised you're even interested in hearing what I did. And... Um, you know, that's not to kind of puff myself up as somebody who, oh, I'm the first person to talk to veterans. But, you know, I think we uh, as a culture aren't very good at listening to veterans and talking with them and, and letting them tell their story. So I've tried to be mindful of letting them narrate their experience, tell their perspective on their little slice of the war, um, and then you can put that information in the context of a larger history and, and um, uh, do so in a way that really respects the veterans right to their story. And um, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a really important thing for historians to do, but it's been one that's really been profound for me as I've talked to veterans about their experiences. 
See, and I, I definitely recognize that. Um, you mentioned before about how your, your track coach, um, he, he was struggling with this paradox, right? Of, of the, it was the best thing that ever happened in my life and it was the most terrible thing. Um, many veterans I work with and, and even I myself recognize that it's the, the, you know, it was the best of times, worst of times paradox in that, you know, my favorite deployment was also my least favorite deployment, which was my, my, um, main deployment to Afghanistan, the most kinetic, um, the one where we lost in, in, uh, most, uh, injured people. Um, but also you're talking about this paradox of the veteran story, right? We veterans, we want people to understand what we did and to know what we did. Well, at the same time, we don't know how to say it or nobody can drag it out of us. Um, in a way for you, this is the, the ability for you to, um, to help resolve that paradox in a lot of veterans. Um, well, I, I hope that some of the conversations I've had, um, have been helpful in that regard. You know, I, 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 I don't think that's my primary goal. And I wouldn't set that as my primary goal. Um, but I think that a lot of what I write about, especially getting into signature wounds, is about how the culture as a whole would benefit if we were more open to engaging with veterans and talking with them about their experiences and saying, you know, tell me about your service. Tell me about what you did, where you were, whether you liked it or not. Um, and, and I want to emphasize that's different, I think, than saying, tell me gory war stories. You know, that's not what you want to ask veterans for. But just saying, you know, what branch of the service were you in? Uh, when were you in the service? Uh, where did you deploy? Where did you go? And, and starting there, um, I think really is something that gives veterans an opportunity to begin telling their story. And I think uh, the process of telling a story is never complete. You, you don't just say it once and it's done. You're always revisiting it and going back to it. And, and, um, and I, I, I hope that uh, more and more veterans are having that opportunity because I think everybody benefits when we hear stories of veterans experience. Right. And, and then, you know, as you said, the signature wounds book was, was really an extension from your previous book. Um, and it, it, it rose out of that, um, Mm-hmm. And, and you, you got pretty extensive and you talked to a lot of folks in, in this book, um, about the, um, uh, about the development of the mental health and the addressing in the mental health and you identify PTSD, TBI, um, and you even put suicide in there as one of the signature wounds that you're referring to in the title. Um, maybe give us just sort of an overview, um, of the book. Sure. So. Pretty quickly after the war in Iraq begins, um, Americans, both policymakers, uh, ordinary citizens, journalists, and it turns out the military, began worrying in different ways about the mental health consequences of these wars. And they begin wondering what kinds of experiences soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines, airmen and marines, and I, I particularly focus on the army in this book, um, have had and what the mental health consequences of those experiences have been. And as I got into the research, what I realized was that there are multiple stories and multiple uh, strands of, of this larger story of the way mental health became um, a major issue for Americans to sort out and deal with over the course of these wars. So on the one hand, for people who were opposed to the Iraq war and, and to a lesser extent, the Afghanistan war, because once the Iraq war begins, Afghanistan, as you know, sort of fades a little bit from the public consciousness. Right. But, um, the f- stories of veterans who are returning home with post-traumatic stress disorder who are returning home with brain injury, who are returning home with uh, a range of mental health issues that sometimes lead them to contemplate attempt or sometimes die by suicide, becomes really powerful rhetoric for the anti-war factions in Congress and in the general public to say, look at what 
that is happening to these men and women who are serving in this terrible war that the country never should have fought. And so that was one strand that you could follow through political rhetoric and through the uh, media coverage. But then at the same time, inside the military, there was a real awareness of these issues and a real attempt to, to address them and to, to, to find out through very rigorous and very sophisticated research, what were the mental health outcomes for service members who were deployed? What were the barriers to treatment? And what was necessary to uh, prevent and treat mental health issues? And if you think about those two narratives that I just sketched out, they actually, you know, although they were happening simultaneously, they, they approached mental health from very different sides. One was these mental health conditions are indicators of how awful these wars are and are evidence for an anti-war position. On the other side, there was these are medical realities that are, um, in a sense, inevitable to some degree when you put people in a combat situation. And therefore, they are conditions that we as a military are uh, responsible for researching and treating and addressing. And part of the dominant popular narrative around mental health in these wars was, oh, the military didn't do enough for soldiers, right? The military didn't care or they just put people into these situations and, and didn't do anything for them when they came back. And one of the things I found, and I, I have to be honest, that because I hadn't done the research when I went into the book project, and all I had been doing was reading what you see in newspapers and uh, on television and so on, I had really uh, expected to write a book where I talked about the failures of the military to address these issues. And then when I got into doing the research, what I found was, what was actually true was that the military had worked incredibly hard to address these issues. Um, the problem was that the wars were longer and more brutal uh, than anybody had anticipated and anybody had prepared for, and that the military was struggling in real time to understand how to research, develop treatments for, and then provide treatments for the mental health issues that came along. And um, there's a quote very early in the book where Pete Guerin, the secretary of the army says, our, our approach to mental health was the equivalent of trying to change the tires on a bus while it was going 60 miles an hour down the highway. You know, in, in a very real way, they were struggling with the unanticipated length and brutality of these wars and to address the issues that they brought up in, in real time. And so the, the book, goes back and forth between these various narratives, trying to explain the the various ways Americans made sense of mental health and understood mental health issues as a key issue that they had to confront in the war. You know, I appreciate and especially those sort of diverging viewpoints. But as you were talking, it made me think of uh, the politicians, um, let's say, um, especially and at that point and early in the, the, uh, the conflicts, there were Vietnam veterans still in, you know, in, in Congress or, or in the community, um, as there are now. But, you know, people like John Murtha and John McCain, they knew what was going to happen. They were looking at current issues from a position of experience. Again, we're talking about the specter of the Vietnam War. So they went through it and they're seeing what's happening and they say, well, we know what's going to happen in the future. Whereas the military was looking at what's going on now. I'm not worried about the eggs when you got a bunch of chickens running around. That That's partly true in the sense that the Vietnam War uh, did for a lot of politicians shape their approach to Iraq. And they would say, we saw what happened in Vietnam. We saw what happened with Vietnam veterans. Um, Patty Murray, the Democratic senator from Washington State, was a particular, uh, particularly vigorous proponent of better mental health for veterans. And she talked quite a bit about having seen what world, what uh, Vietnam veterans had gone through and to a certain extent, what world war two veterans had gone through. And uh, we really needed to learn the lessons. Why are we letting this happen again to a new generation of veterans? That was certainly part of the rhetoric. Um, 
the military and the VA took somewhat different approaches and were more focused on what kind of research do we need to do now to address this new generation of soldiers, the people we have with us. Um, in large part, uh, both the military and the, the VA did not think about Vietnam very much as um, providing a lot of usable lessons for them. So they took a very different approach. You know, I could definitely see that, and especially as um, the conflicts went on, um, again, looking at Vietnam, you know, starting in 65, ending in the mid-70s, but really the heights of the conflict was that 67 through 69 kind of um, uh, time frame, whereas the, the heights of the conflicts were, were you know, the, the core aspects of both um, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts were probably four or five years, and, and of course, they're still going on now. Um that uh, I think you're right. There wasn't a lot of discussion when we were in the military, and this was the time that I was in, to really talk about, you know, hey, let's take the lessons that we learned from Vietnam and apply them here. Um, uh, that analogy of, you know, changing the tires while the bus is going 60 miles an hour, um, from my recollection, was absolutely appropriate. Yeah, I think it's really important to understand that with the comparison between Vietnam and the 21st century wars in terms of who was fighting um, and the nature of the wars isn't really perfect. And the military realized that, especially from, from a medical and mental health standpoint, which is the key difference was that in the 21st century wars, you're dealing with an all-volunteer force. And that that meant that because you didn't have a population of draftees who are deploying for a year and then coming home and getting out of the service. Um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you had people deploy multiple times. And this was something the military had never done before. They never cycled people. Deployment, home, deployment, home. And, and some people uh, like you are, are, are three-time deployers and some people are five- and six-time deployers by the time the war is over. Um, if it's over, you know, depending on how we want to talk about it now, I don't think we should say Afghanistan's over, right? But, you know, one of the key issues that they had to confront was, well, what are the consequences of multiple deployments? Uh, what are the consequences of this cycling of deployment and dwell time that the military had never really thought about? Uh, how long can you deploy somebody for? Is a 15-month deployment a good a good thing for somebody's mental health, or is there a period? Of <laughs> Arguably, I'd say no, having experienced one. But and I think you know that's where the military eventually comes down. But there's um, there's reasons, and I can talk about them why they go to the 15-month deployment that have to do actually with um, maintaining the force in a certain way, maintaining the, the it's a, it is an, in a sense an effort to maintain the well-being of, of the force initially. And, um, you know, how long does a person need to be home in between deployments in order to get back to their baseline mental health? And can you do that at a time when you're fighting two wars that are that are very kinetic and you have a relatively small force that you're asking to do this? And so Vietnam, none of those things were really operative in Vietnam. And, and the other issue with the all-volunteer force is that now more and more service members have families. And trying to think about family mental health and both the impact on a deployed service member's mental health when they have a family at home versus the mental health of the spouse or partner or children who are worrying about the deployed service member. These were relatively new things that the military hadn't had to think about in Vietnam. They, they were they were problems that had to be solved in the 21st century. You're absolutely right. As I'm reflecting back on it, there wasn't a a year between 2006 and 2013 where I wasn't gone part or all of the year. Um, and even that time, like you said, in between, it was taken up with, you know, a deployment training. And, and, you know, one summer I was sent, you know, away um, to go back to recruiting duty. I mean, it's just the the, the regular process of, of um, even that time back is not necessarily time back. Right. And I, 
and, and I had been married by that time and, and both of my children were born before, um, my son was born one month before 9-11, which means that for the first time in history, he could enlist and fight in the same war that I could come this August, which is a totally different story. But, but I've had Vietnam veterans that, that were looking at the draft that they deliberately said, I will not get married before I go to Vietnam. They waited until after Vietnam because they, they knew that it was going to happen. Even again, as you're reflecting, my sister and of course myself weren't born until after my father deployed to Vietnam. I don't know that he and my mother married until after he came back from Vietnam. Um, and so there was that, um, very much that, that sort of disconnect. Um, and, and it does lead to a, a greater, um, impact. Uh, as I often say, my children were in, in first and second grade when I started to deploy and they were approaching high school when I stopped. Um, and, and that makes a, a huge difference. And again, often I say veteran mental health impacts the family and, and the family impacts mental health, which then increases all of these signature wounds that you talk about in the book. That's right. I mean, as you know, and many of your listeners will know, you know, when you are a service member with a family, and especially in these 21st century wars where the connectivity is so great, where you have cell phones and you have email and you have Skype and the soldier in Iraq or Afghanistan is not completely disconnected from what's going on at home first, right? So uh, if your kid is struggling at school or your kid has a health problem or um, your partner or spouse is struggling because they are suddenly a single parent having to do all of the caregiving and run the household and all of these things, that's an additional stressor for that deployed service member, right? They're worrying about those issues. And at the same time, you have the people at home who, and I write about this in the book, are in, you know, the, the, the amount of anxiety and depression among military spouses and children goes up quite a bit during these wars because they're worried about their loved one's well-being, you know, and they're saying things like, well, every time the phone rings, is it going to be bad news? Every time I come home and I turn the corner, I'm hoping there isn't a government sedan parked in front of my house with a chaplain and and a casualty, casualty notification team in it. And to live um, through that experience of deployment constantly on edge is really hard for spouses, really hard for children. Um, and then you add to that the, the multiple deployments where people are coming home and how do you get back into a marriage when you've been gone for 15 months and you know you're leaving again in nine, uh, nine more? Uh, if you go away and you have a first grader and you come back and they're a third grader, you know, how do you connect with that child? Um, there's a lot of additional stressors that go into um, the fact that we now have a, a, a force that is largely um, partnered, has, has children and so on. And I, I think, um, it's really important to take into consideration the stress and strain that is heightened on families as, as we pursue these lengthy wars. Right. And, and as you're talking, I'm thinking of, um, yes, it was absolutely necessary. I recognize the necessity. I was on one of the 15 month tours where we were sent 12 months and then told you're doing an initial three while we were over there, which is a totally different mind shift than, than somebody that was sent over there knowing they would be going for 15 months. Um, and, and it was absolutely necessary and it was required and, and yes, we did it, but it was sort of like sooner or later the piper is going to get paid, right? And the, the bill's going to come due. Um, mm -hmm. and it's not until even now that in, and for many of the veterans I see, yes, the wars are still going on, as you say, in Afghanistan. And even you arguably, we do have troops currently in Iraq and in Syria. Um, that you could say that, that even that is still going on, although a different operation. Um, but I'm, I'm meeting with veterans that, that their experiences were struggles in 2004, 2005. Um, you know, and, and here we are still in this conflict, but we're dealing with wounds that are, you know, 10, 12 years old. Yeah. And I think it's often the case that when a service member is caught up in that kinetic cycle of deployment 
training, uh, redeployment. Um, they may not have time to think about their experiences and reflect on them. And it's really when things slow down and you have the opportunity to reflect that some of those um, issues that need to be addressed will come to the surface. You know, I think it's, it's sometimes easy when you're just running all the time to, to push aside some of the problems. They, they tend to find, <laughs> I guess, in, my thinking is they, they find their way out in other, other ways, right? You, you know, anxiety, uh, and depression do not, um, do not, uh, just lay low. They'll come out and you'll be, people will be snapping at their wives or their husbands or whatever. But there's, um, often it's not until people either get out of the service or they get to a, a place where they're not on that heavy deployment schedule that that's when they really are going to step back and see, oh, there, there are some things I haven't worked through here for my deployment. But I wonder if that has an impact, um, and, and maybe arguably um, I've seen that this has an impact, because if we talk about the Vietnam veterans first emerging into working out their, their concerns 10 or, year, 10 or so years after, we're talking about 75, 78, and the, the war – was complete by then it was done. Whereas mm -hmm. now veterans are, are still coming back. Um, and I don't know that it, maybe there's this narrative of why were we there? I'm not hearing a lot of that from the veterans I'm working with. I could care less of maybe about that piece. Um, uh, but I wonder if the fact that the conflict is still going on, um, has an impact on how veterans are dealing with it. And if you saw something like that from, from the book. Well, I think that the key issue that veterans were confronting is um, yeah, certainly these wars were longer than they had anticipated. They were more um, brutal in some ways than had been anticipated. But what the Army became really good at was saying to veterans, to soldiers, that it is inevitable when you go on a deployment that you will have a psychological response to it. But it is, it is impossible to come back from a deployment without having been changed by it in some way. And some changes are for the better. You know, some veterans talk about uh, the intense camaraderie that they had and the, the sense of purpose that they had. And that then when they return home and they lose, they leave the service, well, I don't feel quite as connected anymore. I don't feel like whatever I do in my day job now has the same sense of purpose. And that can be a struggle and a stressor. Um, but also that you can have some negative outcomes from your deployment that might need some treatment. And then in the middle, there are all these things that would be uh, the way the army phrased it was there are, there are healthy adaptations to being in a combat environment that are not healthy adaptations when you are home. Right. So, for example, being hyper vigilant and uh, being uh, hitting the deck when there's a loud noise is actually a really good adaptation in a combat environment. Right. But at home, it isn't. Right. Um, being emotionally. Uh, having emotional control and being able to kind of put your feelings aside and just not address something that's bothering you can be really useful in a combat environment because if you're in a unit where something bad has happened and you have to go out the next day, your survival depends on you being able to focus in that on that mission. But then when you come home and you can't relate to your family, that's an unhealthy adaptation. So I think that one of the, the key issues is not necessarily um, – you know, the fact that the wars are still going on, but how do you, how do you approach helping people understand that in the midst of these long wars, you're going to be in a variety of environments where a variety of, uh, mental health or psych, let me say psychological responses will happen. Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them, uh, 
good in this environment, not good in that environment, and learning to manage that and realize how to deal with them, um, uh, deal with them effectively so that you can return to that, not only that baseline mental health, but also kind of capitalize on the positive experiences of a deployment while dealing with the negative ones. You know, I think you're, you're absolutely correct. And there was this, um, uh, the beneficial aspects, this post-traumatic growth, the, the concept, uh, um, that, um, uh, much from Martin Seligman and, and, um, and developed by others. Um, in Vietnam, you couldn't go back. If you were talking to a therapist, let's say in the late seventies, you knew that it was over and there was no way that for you to go back. Um, but I still get veterans saying, well, it's still going on. I wish I were back there in order to relive those beneficial experiences, that camaraderie and that sense of purpose is to say that there still is a there for me to go back to. Yeah, and I think that's also true when you're looking at not necessarily a war that's gone on now for, gosh, it'll be 18 years this fall, right? So um, when you're dealing with a professional military where people stay in 20 years, um, people stay in the military often because they want to be in the military, right? They they, uh, they they find that work meaningful. And they find that camaraderie meaningful. And um, one of the things that has was a focus of the army in 2006, 2007 was actually throughout was saying, even if you had a negative experience and you came back with uh, a mental health issue, you had some post-traumatic stress, you had some anxiety, you had some depression. In most cases, those conditions are treatable and a person can be returned to their previous level of mental health and can go back to doing their job. And uh, the treatment is there. The treatment works. And uh, most of those conditions are temporary but treatable. And so post-traumatic stress is normal. Uh, a little bit of anxiety or a little bit of depression is not uncommon and helping soldiers to see that it wasn't that you something, you something, something was wrong with you on this grand scale, but you just needed either to just let some of these things take their course and they would resolve on their own as they often do from, for the vast majority of veterans who come back, they readjust just fine. Right. And then there were some who, their recovery will be sped along through some therapy, maybe some medication. And uh, then they can remain in that environment where they find the work so meaningful, right? Which is to say they can stay in the service and uh, potentially even deploy again. Yeah. And I, I think that that is definitely true is, uh, but also the issue of, um, you know, if everybody else around you is wet, you don't know how wet you are, right? I mean, everybody else around you is dealing with this high operational tempo. Everybody else around you is, is dealing with this back and forth. And how do I flip my emotions and my thoughts between combat and non-combat? Um, that once you get out of the military and you're no longer surrounded by people like you, maybe this isolation, you know, how different quote unquote you might be. Um, then it would be natural to want to go back to where you felt like everybody knew your name and, and what you were like. Sure. And everybody had a shared set of experiences and a shared vocabulary for talking about them. Um, I think that's really, really powerful for many veterans is this idea that they want to uh, be around people who have shared their experience and feel as though many civilians uh, neither understand nor care to understand their experience. And, and so I, I absolutely understand where that desire to remain in the service or go back on another deployment comes from. 
You know, and, and um, to wind down here, this is something that was really interesting. I mentioned to it before we uh, before we talked, and I wanted to get into this, is um, you wrote Forever Vietnam in 2014, arguably, you know, nearly 50 years after the end of the conflict. Um, but Signature Wounds, um, you wrote in 2019, where we're still in this conflict. We're still in the middle of this conflict. Um, we had... Uh, um, you know, uh, Michael Rodriguez from the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation on the show. Um, well, we're already talking about the Global War on Terror Memorial and the Global War on Terror is not even over yet. Um, and, and this is some, something different about writing about the, the conflicts. And there's been many, many books written, but historical accounts about the conflicts while the conflicts are still going on, it's not always done. No, and I uh, I was mindful of that when I was doing the research and writing the book. But I think there were some real benefits to writing it now. And one benefit was that I had access to so many of the people who had been involved in developing the treatments and grappling with these issues for for uh, for service members. So I, I was able to interview everybody from. Pete Guerin, the Secretary of the Army, down through George Casey, the Chief of Staff, Peter Corelli, the Vice Chief, who had been very, uh, very, very uh, active in promoting mental health and suicide prevention and so on. Um, I was able to interview all of the people who served as Surgeons General during for the Army during these wars, um, but also a lot of the uh, less well-known psychiatrists and psychologists who did the research, developed the treatments, implemented treatments at places like Fort Carson. Um, and I think that access to people who had done this work and their willingness to share their stories with me really made this book uh, something that allows the reader to see how the military works as an institution and how the military um, functions as a part of society. And also to really challenge this narrative that I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation about how um, the military wasn't working very hard to solve these problems. So I really wanted to write the book as a corrective to that oversimplified narrative and to ask people who read it to really think more deeply about the military and its place in the culture and about the impact these wars have had on the country. And I wanted to do it while the wars were still fresh in people's minds um, and while we're still trying to think about what the lessons are, because I am not as hopeful as I am that we won't fight another war. I'm not naive enough to think we won't. Um, that's one thing being a historian teaches you, I think, is that it's you know, um, unfortunately likely that there will be more wars. Um, and when I interviewed George Casey, uh, I asked everybody, what are the big lessons we should take from these wars about mental health? And George Casey said, to me, most important thing is not to let it fall off the table again, to, to make sure that whatever lessons we've learned, whatever treatments we've developed, whatever ways we've changed the culture of the army, which was really uh, what this book is really a story of in some ways, um, we have to not let that go. And so writing the book now and writing it with the rigor uh, that I would use to write any historical work. Uh, hopefully will cause a conversation about, well, what are the big lessons of this conflict? What are the ways that the army was either successful or not successful? And how do we take those lessons and apply them to the military, to our culture as a whole, to have a better handle on mental health as we move forward? You know, I, and I really appreciate that the idea of this book specifically focusing or, or any books really specifically focusing on, um, the, the mental health and the psychological impacts. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm looking around here, all of the, the combat books I have, maybe the only ones I have are, are Dave Grossman's books, right? On war, on killing, addressing the psychological impacts. Everything else, the mental health aspect is, is maybe a footnote if it's even in the book at all. But this idea of this being a historical account of how the military, the army specifically, developed their response to um, mental health. Um, I agree. And I think this is probably a book that's, that's happening at just about the right time 
where we can still make some adjustments for maybe this is halftime and, and this is the halftime that we're making adjustments for the second half of the game. Well, I, I certainly hope it's not halftime. I don't want to think about a 36 year long war. In no, I know. I know. But, That's um, my cynicism bleeding through maybe. But, um, you know, I think as a culture, not just for the military, but as a culture, Americans are really bad at talking about mental health and we're really bad at thinking about how do we identify and acknowledge and normalize mental health issues as something that many Americans are going to struggle with over the course of their lives and that many people are going to need a little bit of help with. And it's and, and to say it's okay to go out and see a therapist. It's okay to go out and get a prescription for uh, an SSRI or um, or some other medication that might help you. And these are uh, often not lifelong conditions. They're things people can learn to manage and that are not going to be detrimental to your to your well-being or your employment or your relationships over a long period of time. The military got really good at saying that. Um, and so I hope the book hits at the right time for a new generation of military leaders coming up who are going to be the people who take over from the generation that fought and led the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. But I also hope it's a book that people who aren't in the military will read and say, okay, what are the lessons we can take from the military and apply to our everyday life about the people we interact with it and our families and our jobs um, to help promote a culture of mental health more generally. And I think, um, and, and perhaps if you hadn't considered this, um, arguably a third audience of those mental health professionals who are interested in supporting veterans um, who may or, or may not have served, but uh, um, as we talked before we got started was um, uh, one of the things that got me into the mental health field was there weren't enough combat veterans in the mental health field. And I can see this book much as I, I you know, um, I appreciated Jonathan Shea's Achilles in Vietnam and looking at the moral injury and, and, and these issues or, or even, um, as far back as, um, you know, uh, Frankel's man search for meaning the psychological impacts of trauma. Um, I can see this book helping clinicians understand more about military and veteran mental health if they hadn't had that lived experience. Well, I certainly hope that's true. You know, um, I mentioned this statistic before. I'm sure you say it all the time on the show, but 99.5% of Americans are not in the military, which means that when these veterans return to their communities and they go out and find a therapist, the chances are very slim that that therapist has any military experience, much less any training in how to deal with particularly military-related issues, right? So the average therapist is not, um, probably hasn't had the opportunity to get the kind of training specifically to deal with veteran issues. And hopefully this book helps them because one of the things that I took very seriously when I learned it in, uh, there's, there's a woman named Amy Adler, who's an army research psychologist. And she said to me that you have to remember that the vast majority of veterans are successful people. They have made the cut to get into the military. They have succeeded in making it through basic training. They have gone on to some advanced training, you know, AIT or something. And then they have deployed. They have been successful at their deployment and they have returned. And those, and if some of those people need a little bit of help to get back to, uh, their previous mental level of mental health, if they need a little bit of help to process what they've seen, that doesn't mean they're not successful. That doesn't mean they're damaged. That doesn't mean they are, uh, th th this mythology, uh, of the deranged life, the veteran who's, who's damaged forever is just not true in most cases. And, um, I think breaking down that, uh, that image for, uh, for the public. And maybe, and for providers who, who might not know a lot about the military or know what veterans have experienced would be really a great outcome for this book. If, if people read it and took that message that with in the vast majority of cases, you are dealing with a population that is very successful and very capable. 
and just need a little bit of help to get on to the next stage of their life. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think it definitely has the, um, uh, the potential to be able to do that. So if people wanted to pick up the book or maybe find out more about you, how can they, um, maybe connect with you on social media or find the book online? Sure. They can uh, find the book on Amazon or uh, at any other bookseller online would have uh, the book available. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at David Kieran two, all one word. And uh, you can visit my website, Dave Kieran.com D A V E K I E R A N.com. And you can also uh, look me up at Washington and Jefferson college where I teach. And I have a uh, profile there on their webpage and my emails there. And I would love to hear from people who had, read the book and uh, have them tell me what they thought about it. Well, no, I'll definitely make sure that uh, all of those links are in the show notes. Thanks for coming on the show today, David. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. There you have it, a great conversation with Dr. David Kieran. Mental health isn't an easy subject or something that can be broken up into quick conversations. One of the challenges is how complex it is and how we want a quick solution. David looks at the course of mental health from a historian's perspective and has done extensive research on the subject. For this episode and for future episodes, we're going to try something different. Along with this extended episode, I'm going to provide a shorter preview episode of some of the topics that we discussed. In a conversation with a couple of colleagues, one concern was with the length of the show that an hour is a long time to listen to a podcast. In order to provide some of the great information in a shorter format, check out the preview show, which will also be linked in the show notes. I mention it a lot, but your feedback is important, and I'd be grateful to hear from you. Occasionally, I'll get somebody reaching out or commenting on social media, but overall, I'm not sure if I'm hitting the mark or if you'd like to hear something different. Sometimes, there's a question of whether or not the content is resonating or not. To be honest, there have been times where I'm not certain I should keep going with the show. I'm looking to develop a core team of longtime listeners who would like to work with me to improve the blog and podcast. Outside the support that I got from the Changer POV guys early in the development of the show, this has largely been a one-person endeavor, and I could use some support. If you would like to get involved, reach out at info at and let me know. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST135. If you want to show your support for the work that we're doing, make sure to leave an honest rating or review and subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. You can see all of his work at TheRealDocTodd.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real. Found a piece and lost a soul. Eventually, my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly, death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds overgrown. Pushing up stones, I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies, broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me. RIP, I'd rather grind in tranquility. Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability.
guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.